Welcome to the BreastCancer.org podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest information on breast cancer research, treatments, side effects, and survivorship issues through expert interviews, as well as personal stories from people affected by breast cancer. Here's your host, BreastCancer.org Senior Editor, Jamie DiPolo. Hello, thanks for listening. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Eckert, a postdoctoral fellow in hematology and oncology at Stanford University Hospital. While earning his bachelor's degree in molecular and cell biology and gender studies, Dr. Eckert became interested in the way that social norms perpetuate inequalities in healthcare for LGBTQ people. After earning his MD and a master's degree in health and medical science, he began his postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford, where he helped design and teach the Stanford Internal Medicine LGBTQ Health Curriculum for Resident Physicians. Dr. Eckert recently published a study in JAMA Oncology about disparities in breast cancer care for LGBTQ plus people, and he joins us today to talk about the research. Dr. Eckert, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So before we focus on your particular study, I'm wondering if you can talk about the discrimination that LGBTQ plus people face when going to doctor's appointments and other healthcare visits. Yeah, absolutely. I think as a way to best kind of frame the scope of the problem that LGBTQ plus people face when they go to the doctor, it's uh, going to be helpful for me to outline who is LGBTQ in America today. So um, 7.1% of Americans identify as LGBT. That breaks down as being about 1% lesbian, 4% bisexual, 1.5% gay, and 0.7% transgender. And we know that LGBT orientations cut across all race and ethnicity groups about equally. And we also know that as um, it's become more socially acceptable to come out, that with each successive generation of Americans, that a larger and larger percentage of Americans are identifying as being LGBT. So for example, the generation before the baby boomers uh, who are called the traditionalists, it was 0.8% of the population. By the time of the baby boomers, 2.6%. Gen X, 4.2%. Millennials, 10.5%. And according to a 2021 Gallup survey, 20.8% of Gen Z identify as being LGBT. So when we talk about discrimination, we've got to keep in mind that this is going to be a conversation that we're going to have to continue to have because the percentage of the population that's identifying as LGBT is only increasing. Now, with respect to discrimination, LGBT people experience discrimination in healthcare settings by basically every conceivable metric that we have. For example, in 2013, the Human Rights Campaign um, Health Equity Index found that 56% of LGB adults and 70% of transgender adults uh, reported experiencing discrimination in healthcare settings in their lifetime. In 2017, there was a 28,000-person survey that was um, conducted by transquality.org, and they found that within a one-year period, so within the last year, 33% of surveyed participants um, reported having negative experiences with healthcare providers in that year. And those experiences included being refused treatment, verbally harassed, sexually assaulted, physically assaulted, or having to teach their own doctor about how to provide care for them. And as a correlate, 23% of transgender people report postponing care because of fear of discrimination. 
This isn't just something that's uh, unique to the trans community. We know that um, while only 13% of LGBT people have ever gone to an LGBTQ health clinic, over half wish that they could because of fear of discrimination in other healthcare settings. Correspondingly, lesbian patients who experience discriminatory behavior from a clinician are more likely to subsequently seek health advice online as opposed to going back to a doctor. And patients are also less likely to come out to physicians who discriminate against them or who otherwise are kind of poorly communicating. And all of this is supported by what LGBTQ physicians already know. In a 2010 survey of LGBT physicians, 65% reported that they had experienced hearing derogatory comments from other healthcare professionals about patients who are LGBT, and 34% had witnessed discriminatory behavior of an LGBT patient directly. So, you know, really, this is a huge problem that really disproportionately affects this population. Yes, that's those are some very discouraging and depressing numbers. It does make me ask, though, you talked about how uh, people wish they could go to an LGBTQ clinic specifically. If more people are identifying as part of that community, are there more clinics? Is the number of clinics getting larger proportionately? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. The short answer to your question is no. There Mm -hmm. are more clinics now than there have been. Um, I think that, you know, slowly the numbers are increasing, but there is really a disparity in the number of providers who are trained to be able to deliver this kind of care for this population compared to the number of people who need it. And that was part of some of my desire to, you know, design and implement this curriculum for the Stanford Internal Medicine residents. Just when I was a resident at Stanford, this curriculum didn't exist. And keeping in mind that Stanford's in the Bay Area, which is a famously um, very friendly place to LGBTQ people, it was surprising to me that we got no education in this. And there's this big distinction between being friendly and being knowledgeable. I mean, if you're coming to a cardiologist because you're having chest pain, it's nice if they're wearing a heart-shaped pin on their lapel and they're smiling, but if they're not going to actually, you know, have the technical prowess to be able to, you know, keep you healthy, then they're not very helpful ultimately. And that's unfortunately, I think, kind of the situation where a lot of primary care spaces have donned rainbow flag pins and stickers and things, and that's nice. And that's certainly a first step and not everywhere is even there yet. But but among those places where they've kind of recognized that the iconography is the first step, um, I feel like there's a there's a barrier between that first step and then actually teaching physicians and nurses how to um, use like hard skills that are specific to taking care of an LGBT population and, you know, to actually do that work. Yes. Okay. Now, you have long been interested in healthcare disparities that LGBTQ plus people face. I'm wondering how you came to focus specifically on breast cancer for this latest paper. So uh, this is a great question because um, my clinical interest is actually malignant hematology, so um, leukemia and lymphoma. But breast cancer in LGBTQ populations has interested me from an anthropological perspective for a while now because of the inherent complexities of being a member of a sex and gender minority community and undergoing medical procedures related to sexualized parts of the body that are always already couched in a hetero or cisnormative medical framework. So because I'm speaking to a general audience, I'll go ahead and describe the concept of 
heteronormativity. So taking a step back, George Conguiem is one of the great medical historians of the 20th century. And he wrote a book called The Normal and the Pathological um, in kind of um, the middle of the 1900s. And in that book, he tells us that our contemporary ideas around what constitutes normalcy in human health was originally derived from the normal distribution in statistics, which is the kind of famous bell curve that people know about in kind of popular scientific media. But there are several logical fallacies here. For one, just because something is common in a population doesn't mean that it's more optimal for human health than something that's less common. So for example, if you took um, the blood pressure of every adult over 40 in the US off of blood pressure medication, then you took all of those people's blood pressure, you would find that the normally distributed range of blood pressures is significantly higher than what we know based on clinical research to be a healthy blood pressure with respect to risk of future heart attacks and strokes. And so in that example, the minority of people with blood pressure under 120 over 80 are actually healthier than the norm. Another reason why there's a logical fallacy in this is that in statistics, extrapolating from a population level characteristic back onto an individual is called the ecological fallacy. It's something that every first year statistics student, medical student learns about in their coursework. And in the blood pressure example, the ecological fallacy would be the assumption that your blood pressure, that your blood pressure is high just because the average unmedicated adult's blood pressure is high. So we can't do that. We can't go from population to, to know what's going on with the individual. So, you know, circling back, hetero and cis normativity are confounded by both of these logical fallacies, whereby cisgenderism and heterosexuality are presumed to be the optimal sex and gender combinations for individuals because they're most common in the general population. Nevertheless, healthcare delivery systems, medical research, and medical education are nearly always heteronormative because of the legacy of these implicit biases. And if you're interested in kind of learning more about the way that heteronormativity intersects with breast cancer care, I cannot recommend enough the book by uh, Professor Lachlan Jane, who's an anthropologist at Stanford. Their book is called Malignant, and that's part autobiography and also part medical anthropology about their experience as a transmasculine person with breast cancer. So that's, that's actually, you know, all of that kind of background really sucked me in because I knew that there was something there, you know, from a social perspective and figured that it would translate well. And so that was my initial spark. But while putting together the internal medicine curriculum on LGBT health, I, I found that while the oncologic literature was replete with qualitative research and descriptions from LGBT people who received care talking about their experiences of subtle and overt discrimination, high quality quantitative data on health outcomes for LGBT people with cancer were lacking. And quantitative data, you know, for better or for worse, is what moves policymakers to actually affect change. And so we needed this quantitative data to actually, you know, be able to, to know what was going on, number one, but number two, to, to make change. So with that in mind, I sought to harness the power of my mentor, Dr. Kurian. Dr. Allison Kurian is out of uh, cancer genetics at Stanford, and she has a really fabulous breast cancer database called OncoShare. And that database integrates data of people with breast cancer across the Stanford and Sutter Healthcare systems linked to the California Cancer Registry. 
And I use that to characterize healthcare disparities um, for for people um, from sex and gender minority groups with breast cancer. So it was this combination of, you know, there's this interesting social background. We had a database that was that was usable and just kind of right place, right time. Okay. And that's the perfect segue. So could you summarize the study for us and what you found? Yeah. So this is a matched retrospective um, case control study in which um, people from sex and gender minority groups with a breast neoplasm seen at Stanford Breast Oncology Clinic were matched to cisgender heterosexual patients with breast cancer. And they were matched by year of diagnosis, age at diagnosis, stage, and some of their tumor characteristics. And specifically, that's the estrogen receptor and the HER2 receptor status. After that match was done, we then looked at a variety of both outcome metrics as well as various things that might confound uh, conclusions related to something in outcomes being specifically related to sex and gender minority status. So we looked at, for example, socioeconomic status. We looked at insurance status, and we found that there are no differences um, between the two cohorts in those variables. The sex and gender minority population had more white and Latino patients than the cisgender heterosexual cohort, but, the, but that cohort had more Asian and Pacific Islander patients. So it was important for us to do a sensitivity analysis to make sure that the differences in race and ethnicity didn't impact our results, and they didn't. So the top line results are that people from sex and gender minority groups experienced a delay in diagnosis from symptom onset compared to cisgender heterosexual people. It was about double the time. So median time to diagnosis of 64 days compared to 34 days. We also found that people from sex and gender minority groups were more likely to, to, to decline an oncologist recommended treatment, 38% versus 28%. And most importantly, that people from sex and gender minority groups had higher rates of cancer recurrence. That's both local recurrence and metastatic recurrence compared to cisgender heterosexuals at 32% compared to 13%. And as I said, all of these findings remain statistically significant in multivariate analysis after adjusting for multiple hypothesis testing, which is just asking multiple scientific questions, as well as in the sensitivity analysis adjusted for race and ethnicity. Okay, thank you. So I, I want to ask specifically about some of the results. So the, the time to diagnosis, and you said that was from symptom onset to getting a diagnosis. Do you have any ideas why? Because I guess what I'm wondering, based on what you said earlier, is it that, you know, somebody from the LGBTQ community maybe has some distrust of doctors, so notices a symptom, but then waits to go, so gets diagnosed later? That's a great question. It's both factors from um, from the LGBT people who are presenting with symptoms as well as on the provider level. This matches well with the existing qualitative data in the literature that we do know that LGBT people present later to care or not at all um, because of distrust or prior bad experiences. We also know that when people do present, that they're more likely to experience subtle and overt discrimination. And sometimes that takes the form of longer wait times for an adequate medical workup. Mm, okay. Okay. And there was a, another thing that I thought was really interesting. I believe if I interpreted your mm -hmm. results correctly, the, the risk factors for breast cancer among each group. So among, you know, the, the cisgender heterosexual people and the LGBTQ people, they were about the same. So I guess what I'm wondering, so why do we think we see this much higher rate of, of recurrence? Yeah. 
So I was very careful in designing this study to make sure that we looked at um, a number of very relevant risk factors related to you know, lifetime estrogen exposure, as well as kind of usual cancer risk factors like smoking and alcohol. And I was expecting that differences in risk factors would ultimately explain what other healthcare disparity and outcomes we found. Um, I wasn't expecting to find what we found, which was in fact that the risk factors, as you, as you said, were remarkably well balanced. And, um, and yet there was this disparity in outcomes. To answer your question, I, I think that more research is needed. Um, we don't have a clear sense based on the data that we have available about why the recurrences are so um, hugely different. Certainly, there's something to be said for the fact that patients from sex and gender minority groups were more likely to decline a recommended oncologic treatment. And the most commonly declined treatment modality was the anti-estrogen therapy for ER-positive breast cancer. But I don't even think that that explains it. And, and so, you know, I think that there's a combination of um, certainly uh, lack of trust and potentially not getting appropriate treatment or at least maybe not appropriate treatment for as long as someone should have gotten it. And, uh, and, but I do think that there's additional factors that in this single center retrospective study, we probably weren't unable to fully elucidate. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I know the hormonal therapy is tough because people get prescribed it for either usually five to 10 years after mm -hmm. surgery. And it, I've talked to people who are on it. I know the side effects can be very, very troubling and bothersome. And I know your study found that people from the sex and gender minority groups were more likely to refuse it. But I've seen other studies showing that up to 50% of anybody who's prescribed hormonal therapy for breast cancer after surgery either doesn't complete the full course of therapy or doesn't take it as prescribed. So maybe they don't take the pill every day, they take it every other day, which yeah. you would think would affect the risk of recurrence. So it's very interesting to me that the sex and gender minority group was more likely to just refuse this treatment flat out, but your study didn't really look at treatment compliance, did it? Yeah, that's actually a good point. So Refusal and compliance are rolled into one category for us in this study, and partly that was because that was done because of the fact that our our numbers um, there were only ninety two sex and gender minority patients matched to ninety two cisgender heterosexual controls in the study. So our statistical power in this study was relatively low compared to you know national cohorts of you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And really, that's the next step when you get a a large enough sample size, you can ask more nuanced questions and you have the, the power statistically to be able to detect differences. So that's really why I think that the main take home from this study isn't necessarily the individual disparities per se, but it's really that we need to start prospectively collecting this data in a national scale and adding it to cancer registries and making sure that big hospital systems are collecting this information, this sexual orientation and gender identity or SOGI information in a systematic way. Because if we don't have the data, then we can't identify the healthcare disparity. And, you know, if you can't see the healthcare disparity, you can't fix it. No, absolutely. Right. It sounds like your study was a very important and much needed first step. And then are, are you planning to pursue this? I know it sounds like you're very busy studying a number of things. Are you planning to continue this research or do more specifically on breast cancer? Yeah, I think that I, the answer is yes. I do think that 
I would like to remain in this space as a player and to continue to publish on breast cancer for sex and gender minority populations. My goal, I think, is to start thinking about how these same types of questions that we observed at Stanford might also be observed in other healthcare settings and um, potentially use, um, you know, Kaiser data. Kaiser has huge data sets with millions of patients as a next step. And then within, hopefully then within the next five to 10 years, some of the national cancer databases will um, have accrued enough SOGI data such that we can look at this not only, you know, for example, at Kaiser, which is a bigger population, but then we can start looking at things nationally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's That sounds like it would be very helpful. I do want to back up a little bit uh, and perhaps talk more broadly. You helped design the LGBTQ health curriculum at Stanford, and I know you said you didn't have it when you were a resident. Do you know or do you think that most schools have a program like this? And also, could you tell us what was in your curriculum? So, uh, yeah, as we kind of alluded to earlier in the podcast, we know that there aren't enough LGBTQ competent physicians half of LGB patients and 90% of trans patients say, they tell us in surveys, that there are not enough healthcare professionals who know how to care for them. So the answer is, is that, first of all, there's not enough. Whatever the number of medical training programs that do it or don't do it are. There were surveys uh, that occurred about 10 years ago of U.S. medical schools on the number of hours of LGBT-specific content in their curriculum. And the vast majority of surveyed medical programs reported a median number of five hours of LGBT-specific content, a four-year medical training curriculum from medical school. Over a third of those schools reported zero hours in the clinical years, so the second two years, and about five to 10% reported zero hours in the first two years. So there's definitely a ways to go. Additionally, we know basically nothing about the number of internal medicine residency programs, um, which, by the way, are the internal medicine residency is kind of the the standard stepping stone that every medical oncologist has to go through in order to become a medical oncologist in the U.S. You have to do an internal medicine residency. That means that medical oncologists, if they're not getting, or we don't know about how, you know, they're getting trained as residents, then we really don't know, you know, anything about what that education looks like after someone leaves medical school. But we do know that in a survey of U.S. academic medical practices that um, 52% report having um, their physicians have zero LGBT training, and only 16% of practices reported having any sort of comprehensive LGBT training for their physicians or staff. So overall, you know, this is a problem. The, um, the curriculum uh, that I designed uh, consists of... Um, of six modules currently. Um, There's a module on LGB health disparities and um, LGB health, a module on transgender health and health disparities, a model on um, providing uh, gender-affirming care for the primary care physician, a module on uh, HIV and sexually transmitted infections, uh, a module on anal cancer screening, um, for those in your audience who don't know, because this is a breast cancer-focused fo- podcast, um, anal cancer uh, screening is important for um, men who have sex with men. Think of it as like the cervical cancer equivalent in that population. And both types of cancer are caused by the human papillomavirus and can be prevented with the human papillomavirus vaccine. And uh, anal cancer screening 
is among the elite few cancer screening modalities that has actually been demonstrated to have a mortality benefit. So it's really important. And that's mortality benefit was just shown um, this year in um, Lancet HIV um, by uh, Van Der Zee et al. from a study from the Netherlands for HIV positive men who have sex with them. And then the last module that we do is uh, we look at bias and structural um, cis and heteronormativity so that we can kind of get people to start questioning the the kind of biases that we all walk around with that impact, you know, what we understand as normal and um, healthy. Okay. I, I don't really know how medical resident training works, so apologies if this isn't an yeah. ignorant question, but is there any thought to this curriculum being shared with other institutions or is that, is it more, um, you know, people like their own and they want to keep their own? Yeah, that's a good question. There is a, I know that there's a curriculum that's being developed, I believe by Matt Shabath at Moffitt in Florida, Moffitt Hospital, Moffitt Cancer Center, that is something that's supposed to be kind of generalized for healthcare providers. But that curriculum is, I think, mostly about sensitivity training and kind of cultural humility and that kind of thing. As far as I'm aware, you know, hard skills training for these topics has not been something that's been um, kind of generalized. Um, I, I think it's a good idea, um, certainly in places that might not have someone who has this particular niche interest like me. Um, I, I think that it would be good. But to your point, people do tend to try and have their own teach the content to the residents who are there. Uh, don't necessarily think that that is how it has to be, but but currently that that tends to be what's practiced. Okay. And then finally, um, for anybody in our audience who's listening and is wondering, how can LGBTQ plus people make sure they're getting the most appropriate, the best healthcare, whether it's for breast cancer, breast cancer screening, or another health issue. Do you have tips for people? Yeah. So my biggest recommendation to LGBT people is to remain engaged with the healthcare system. And that's easier said than done. Talked about all of the stats on mistreatment and discrimination and that it makes it very easy um, to disengage, right? Keeping in mind that this is your health and that the best way for you to stay healthy is to stay plugged into the medical system. You know, so find a primary care provider who you have a good therapeutic relationship with and trust and maintain follow-up for routine healthcare maintenance. And you know, if you're someone who is in a larger city and you have the luxury of multiple LGBTQ-friendly providers, um, I would recommend doing some homework and seeing if you can find someone who's not just friendly, but is also knowledgeable, um, someone who's published in you know, areas related to LGBT health, somebody who teaches that curriculum or, um, or otherwise, you know, you, you have word of mouth to find someone who, uh, who actually knows their stuff. Um, there are unfortunately no online resources that I can recommend that are updated. This is something that I'm currently working on um, uh, thinking about, um, seeing if we can create some kind of national list, but right now that doesn't exist. And, uh, and just two other points, you know, if, if you're feeling like you're not getting the care that you need, self-advocacy and having a low threshold for a second opinion are your most powerful tools. This isn't just any, for anybody who's LGBTQ, this is for any patient. And as oncologists, we 
we welcome second opinions. We're never offended. We think that they're important and um, we respect them. On the other hand, you know, my last point is that if a doctor is recommending something to you as standard of care, and for example, hormone suppression for a certain number of years for ER positive breast cancer, but you have reservations about it, or you're having side effects to it, or it's intolerable for one reason or another, my biggest recommendation is to talk to your doctor for one, resources so that you can read about the risks and benefits of discontinuing or changing your dose or changing to a different med, and then have an informed conversation. And the other is, um, you know, we recognize that there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach for anybody, pretty much in any aspect of healthcare, but that, you know, the last thing that you want to do is, is to really disengage because, you know, the role of your healthcare team is really to take care of you. And so if something isn't working, we want to hear about it. We want to see if there's something that we can do to, you know, maybe it's not going to be the, the quote-unquote, like, perfect risk reduction approach, but maybe there's a, a different drug that has a better side effect profile that might not be as effective, but is better than having, you know, no, you know, ER directed therapy, um, for example. Um, there's lots of ways that we can work with, with folks in our clinic to, to see if we can find an approach that really threads that needle for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Finding that the unique care for the unique person, because everybody's situation is different. That's what we say. Yeah. And your advice sounds really good. It reminds me of advice I got from another oncologist. Well, he was, he was speaking to a lot of people, but he said, you know, I want you he framed it as, I want you to be a difficult patient. And what he meant by that was, I want you to ask me questions. I want you to come in and say, what about this treatment? I want you to tell me if you're having horrible side effects and ask me if there's something else that we can use. He's like, that to me is the best because then I can help you the most. You know, he said a lot of people think that asking a lot of questions makes you difficult. And so I would, you know, it sounds like you're saying the exact same thing that no, it's not. It's that you have to be your own best advocate to get the best care. Yeah, totally agree. And, and, you know, an open and honest, you know, flow of communication in both directions is essential because, you know, as you kind of mentioned, you know, if you're taking your therapy every other day, but you're telling your doctor, you're doing something daily, you know, that's suboptimal, but maybe if you had, you know, the proverbial you, you know, um, (laughs) had that conversation with the clinician and and say, hey, I've been having to do this because I'm having such horrible side effects, doc, is there something that you can do that will make my quality of life better? You know, then the physician might say, oh, actually, yes, you know, this isn't necessarily going to be as effective, but nevertheless, I think that I can, you know, put you on a medicine that has a better side effect profile. And, um, and that's better than what you're doing currently. You know, you, you might not only have a more optimized side effect profile, but it might be more efficacious than what you're doing now. Right, right, right. Dr. Eckert, thank you so much. This has been very interesting, very, very informative, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Thank you for listening to the breastcancer.org podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. To share your thoughts about this or any episode, email us at podcast at breastcancer.org or leave feedback on the podcast episode landing page on our website. And remember, You can find a lot more information about breast cancer at breastcancer.org. And you can connect with thousands of people affected by breast cancer by joining our online community.